Good morning, Outlook family. It's good to see everyone this morning. Before, uh, thank you. Yeah, good morning. Uh, before we move into uh, our sermon, I have some family news to share, and I want to pray um, for Linda Young because her husband Jack passed away yesterday afternoon. Jack had been facing a handful of medical challenges in recent months and years and uh, fought valiantly. And uh, man, Jack's just such, such a great guy, and we're sorely going to miss him. Um, uh, no arrangements, uh, details have, have reached me just yet, but um, uh, pl- let's pray for Linda and the whole family, kids, grandkids, um, uh, and just turn our thoughts toward eternity and the fact that one of our own has now crossed over and is living there. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, our hearts go out to Linda and we lift her up to you, to, to the kids, to the grandkids, to the whole family, and they have a wonderful such a wonderful support system and family there. Uh, God, every one of them is grieving the loss of this dear, dear husband, father, grandfather, and for us, friend and brother in Christ, uh, Jack Young, you know, Lord. He was your idea. You thought him up, and we're so glad that we got the chance to spend some time with him. Um, And uh, we smile when we think of him. He was such a great guy and is such a great guy. Lord, we ask that you'd be with that family and give them peace and strength that passes understanding and you just guide their steps in the days ahead, especially Linda. Lord, as we're gathered here and we're about to open up your word, we ask that you'd speak to us in light of eternity, in light of the fact that we know that Jack is an eternal soul who said yes to you, Lord Jesus, and is living in and with you now uh, and enjoying your presence. Um, that's a hope that we all rest in, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, quick, quick announcement. This summer... Uh, we're, every five years or so, we do a sermon series called All Request Summer. So what that means for you is if there is a sermon subject you would like to see preached, uh, then you can uh, scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you. You can reach out in any number of other ways as well, but that would certainly be the quickest way. You'll find a button on there that says All Request Summer. That'll take you to a, a web page with a button in which you click that button and you can let us know something you've always been curious about, something from life, something from scripture, something theological, you name it, but something you'd like to hear a sermon on. Uh, That is the series this June and July. So, All Request Summer is back for the third time every five years we do it, and um, I'm looking forward to it already. So, take advantage of that, and I can't wait to hear and read what you want to see preached on this summer. All right, deal? All right, deal. Now, in this series, True or False, we're exploring the mixed messages and unhelpful ideas about God that we have picked up along the way, and they're holding us back and robbing us from the real and rich life that God intends for us. And then we're diving into what Scripture says is true about God, and we're going to hopefully dispel some myths, myths and mistruths that we might be carrying. And today, the one we're tackling is this. God and I are a lot alike. God and I are a lot alike. We don't think, perhaps, that this idea keeps us from God, but it does keep us from real life in God and a true sense of God. It can really hold us back. Let me explain. When when we think God is a lot like me, we make God in our own image, which does not lead us in any good way directions. It really limits and stifles us in our understanding of God. 
It's kind of a modern idolatry. And it's certainly evidence of our human pride. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this kind of attitude many centuries ago when he said to the people, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? So we turn things upside down when we think that the potter is like the clay, that God is like us. And there's something to be examined there. Idolatry has always been bad for us. That's why God forbids it, and He always has. Forming and following false gods is one thing, and and it's a bad thing. But false ideas about the one true God that form Him in the way we believe He should be, which is usually a lot like us, that is deeply devastating and damaging. This false idea about God, that He's basically like me, creates at a minimum at least these three possible results, which we're going to unpack here in the next few minutes. First, we might think, hey, you know what? God owes me a smooth and successful life, and we're crushed by disappointment. Or, God and I see things pretty much the same, so we're convinced we're always right. Or, God is fed up with all the same people I am, and we're confined by judgmental pride. So, let's unpack this here in the next few minutes. We're going to start with this first one, being crushed by disappointment. It keeps us from God. A Christian scholar and pastor named J.B. Phillips once wrote a whole book on this subject back in 1953. He called it, Your God is Too Small. And its message is no less relevant today. In that book, he observes how many of us can fail to allow ourselves to be grasped by a God who is big enough to account for all the aspects of life. Big enough to transcend this scientific age, as he put it. Big enough to deserve our highest devotion. Instead, we want a God we can grasp, and maybe even control, though we would never say that out loud. A God who cooperates with us, and our needs, and our plans. This is the way he put it at one point in the book. God will inevitably appear to disappoint the person who is attempting to use him as a convenience, a prop, or a comfort for his own plans. God has never been known to disappoint the one who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with his own purposes. Now, I've seen this profoundly confuse, if not completely wreck, the faith of people. Somewhere they've picked up the idea that God will now be like a big brother who beats up all the playground bullies for us. Or like a rich uncle who will cover all the expenses that life will exact from us. In other words, that God exists for my comfort and profit. That He is supposed to cooperate with me. When things go differently than we expect, we blame God. Feel He has failed us or even betrayed us. And then we're crushed. Romans 12, 12, it says, Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. Now what that says to me is that there's a dependence upon God to be God, not this idea that God exists for my convenience, right? Or according to my agenda, or even timeline, right? Let me tell you a story from my own life. Ten years ago, I was a few months into the worst year of my life. Having learned at the start of that year of my former spouse's chronic and unrepentant infidelity, 
I was stretched as emotionally and spiritually thin as I could bear. Even in those countless sleepless nights of trying to discern how to move forward based on this news and on the ongoing reality of, and trying to figure out what the future held, I have to admit, I never thought to blame God. Now, I don't say that because I'm special or anything like that, or, to, or certainly not to, to, to brag. No humble bragging going on here, right? But I, it never entered my mind to think that God was at fault here. I could have said to God, and sometimes people asked me after the fact, gosh, didn't you feel this way? You know, God, I've been serving you since I was 18. I'm a pastor. Uh, I've done everything I know to do for you. You were supposed to watch out for me. Is this how you repay me? Right? Those might have been some pretty easy questions to find myself wallowing in. But I did understand enough to realize that such things pain God too. And He knew my tears. And even though a year later I eventually chose divorce, God was still with me. And He held my future. What we have to do when we face things that are not what we would have chosen or predicted is try to take, as best we can, the wide-angle perspective, which is the one God naturally already has. And we have to let Him be God, even and especially when things go south. Now, this can be particularly difficult for some of us. Peter Scazzaro writes in the book Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, this is a book that the elders and the pastors read last year together, uh, writes about how we Americans especially form our ideas of Jesus around American ideals of success and improvement. He puts it like this, to Americanize Jesus is to follow him because he makes my life better and more enjoyable, right? What is most important, he says, is that you take the long view of the call of God on your life to follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, right? The crucified Jesus knows suffering. The crucified Jesus knows injustice, knows ridicule, knows rejection, knows betrayal. Scazzaro writes, relax, allowing Jesus to hold you. Detach, surrendering your self-will and plans to him. Now he's really getting at something here. Makes it, may, it might sound a little easy when you read it that way, but, but there really is something here, whether it's easy or not. Things aren't going to go the way I planned or even prayed. Can we accept that fact, right? Things will not go the way I planned or even prayed. That does not mean God doesn't love me, isn't God, isn't on the throne, isn't in control. I can rest in the fact that there is much I can't control. And I can release the outcome so I'm not crushed by disappointment. We find ourselves um, feeling as though this is our view of God, right? He kind of owes me. He's going to take care of all the details. And it'll all go just right. Maybe it won't go just right. God is no less God. And we need not be crushed by the disappointments in life. Second thing that sometimes happens is we're convinced because we make God our own image that we're always right. And this too actually keeps us from God. Now, learning from God is good and necessary. In fact, you, I don't think you'll find anyone who believes that more than I do. 
Learning from God is good and necessary. But concluding we've learned it all and learned it perfectly is foolish and dangerous. When I think of God as being a lot like me, then I can start to think that He's let me in on all the secrets, His mystery. And if I needed to know it, He would have told me by now, right? Because He's a lot like me. We're clo- we become closed off to love and to learning. We are blind to our blind spots. And can we confess the older we get, the easier this becomes? Can we admit that? Is it just me? (laughs) All right. At 52, I already feel it, right? The older we get, the easier it becomes to feel like we've already got it all figured out. We've learned enough, maybe even everything we need. We have to fight that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we read, Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. And a little later, Paul writes, If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love is what counts. This is what got got Jesus' opponents wrapped around their own axle so often. They thought they had God boxed in and defined and, they'd got, and that had been true for centuries. He was clearly on their side and saw everything their way, right? They were so very wrong. Jesus standing right in front of them, the flawless, perfect, loving, graceful Son of God, and they put Him on a cross. Let me tell you about an intriguing study by a professor named Nicholas Epley from the University of Chicago. He and his team asked a large representative of uh, sampling of Americans to estimate how like and unlike they and their worldview were compared to various individuals like the president, a pro baseball player, a tech company founder, the average American citizen, and God. So they gave him this list of different people that they would recognize in addition, the average American citizen, in addition, God, and said, how like or unlike Uh, are you compared to each of them in your worldview, your thoughts, your opinions? And what they found was that for many people, the popular question, what would Jesus do, is essentially the same as what would I do? The researchers noted that people often set their moral compasses according to what they presume to be God's standards. They observed, though, the central feature of a compass is that it points north no matter what direction a person is facing. But then they said this research suggests that unlike an actual compass, inferences about God's beliefs may instead point people further in whatever direction they're already facing. In other words, God is a lot like me. It's not that this has to happen, but far too often that it does. Our ethics are formed in an echo chamber, and if someone challenges one of our, uh, some aspect of our worldview, we might be tempted to say they are a heretic. That disagreeing with us is disagreeing with God. That's a heavy thing to say. Other people are perhaps like me in some ways, and perhaps unlike me in others, the study showed people thinking, but the one person who's most like me, that's God. People disagree with me or see things differently than I do, but God and I are on the same page, and we see things the same way. That's essentially what the study revealed. They went on to observe the Jewish and Christian tradition state that God created man in his own image, but it has long been argued that people seem to create God in their own image as well. So let's brace ourselves, friends. Sometimes God disagrees with us. There is a right and wrong. There is a true and false. 
and God perfectly understands them. You and I do not. Sitting here in this moment, you and I are incorrect about something. Not perfectly aligned with all truth. Can we accept that? Right, right. When you put it that way, it's a little easier to accept. So we don't use God, or at least we shouldn't, as a defense of our opinions. Now we can hold our convictions firmly, but also humbly share them, lovingly and gently. And dare I say it, with an openness to learn. Now, if an openness to learn scares you, let me just lay this logic on us again for just a moment. What are the odds that God and I see everything exactly the same way? And in that comparison, who's always right? Let's get this one correct, okay? Who's always right? God, right? He sees things perfectly. He's all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving. So whatever the way God sees anything is the way to see it, the right way to see it, the best way to see it, the highest way to see it. Conforming my life to seeing things more and more His way is the quest we're all on, but we have to accept that right now I'm holding some idea that needs adjustment. So what might God see differently than I do? What am I wrong about? Now this doesn't mean, don't hear me to say this, that truth is up for grabs by the latest trend or, or whatever is popular. It's only that I haven't yet grasped it all. That's the nuance that we're talking about here. Back to Romans 12 for a second. Paul writes, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Now, God is for us to be sure, but that doesn't always mean he agrees with us. To say that God is on our side is a tremendously prideful thing to say. To say that I want desperately to be on his is a far more honest thing. We all have a different collection of things that need correction. You have yours, and I have mine. So we need to see this whole subject is not us and then them, other people. We've got it figured out, if only others did. Well, I think we do a whole lot better to realize that there's all of us wrong and confused about something, somewhere for sure, and him. Not everyone has said yes to him yet. Not everyone knows him. Some people are actively rebelling against him. We see them, though, with compassion, not with judgment, because we realize we were once them and that they can one day be us, all of us, just trying to figure out life under this God who loves us. And that really leads us. We're convinced we're always right and everyone else is wrong, and this can make us confined by judgmental pride. This, too, keeps us from God. Nothing is as effective, it seems to me, in keeping others from God and ourselves from God, from truly experiencing God, than this. Our arrogance in thinking we're closer, more loved, preferred and favorited by God. But certainly God likes me more than them. Let's listen to Jesus. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you, you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck 
from your brother's eye. Let's be honest. We can really stink at this, right? We fail to see. We're strong and steady on a certain conviction. Nothing wrong with that. But then greatly lacking in compassion for someone who has not yet reached that conviction. We see clearly the inconsistencies in this world's philosophies, but then we lead with correction instead of with connection. We speak from self-righteousness or even anger when what's needed, and really the only thing that has any chance of actually being heard, is care and empathy first. So if our need to be right can't still sound like love and caring, then we've missed it. Somehow Jesus could pull it off, right? All, he's all truth and he's all grace. He's all love and yet he's also all wisdom and, and all justice and all righteousness and all holiness. He was able to embody both perfectly. When he spoke the truth, it still sounded like love. So we just wanted to be more and more like him. God help us if we're trying to make him more and more like us. An author named Anne Lamott, who I would always recommend reading, uh, she once jokingly but all too accurately wrote, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> when we think God is on our side, we become prideful, harsh, judgmental, even bullies. Religion, per se, is infamous for drawing lines around God and then using some ugly, narrow version of Him to become terrible people who do terrible things, all in the name of God. But God is not partisan. We cannot afford to fall into this provincial view that God plays favorites. I have stuff in my eye. We all do. Can we help each other? Can we stop thinking that we see perfectly while everyone else is just so clueless and hopeless? We fail to see, as Jesus said in that passage but we don't need to stay that way. Back to Romans 12, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And you can do that while hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. While you do that, you can do the other. Jesus loved people who didn't have things all figured out, who were actively messing up and tripping all over themselves when they were still trying to learn his ways and his wisdom. He still does, and we still do. We can learn what's right and wrong and hate it when wrong hurts people, absolutely. And we can rejoice in what's good and right when we see it. But none of this places, in a, places us in a position to condemn people. We love them toward Jesus and let Him, He's far more powerful, wise, and loving than we are. We love them toward Jesus and let Him, the perfect, truth-filled, and grace-filled judge of us all, lead them in their living. I'm not God, and I won't attempt to make God like me. We can't afford to create God in our image. Instead, let's be conformed to His. False ideas about God play havoc in our lives. Things like, God owes me a smooth and successful life, and so we're crushed by disappointment. This keeps us from God. God and I see things pretty much the same. We become convinced we're always right. This keeps us from God. God is fed up with all the same people I am, and we become confined by judgmental pride. That keeps us and so many others from God. Each week we do battle against this image. 
when we take communion. If you grab the bread and the cup on the way in, I encourage you to, to, uh, to take it in your hand. As Every week we remind ourselves of what is true. False ideas about God, are e- it's easy for them to, sip, to seep into our, our thinking. When we take the bread and the cup, we are reminding ourselves of what is true. I don't want to be a God who's like me. That would be, uh, I don't want a God who's like me. That would be a God far too small. I don't want a God I can control or predict. That would be a God far too weak. I don't want a God who cooperates with me. I'm incorrect far too often. I want a God who sees and knows what I need. What I need is his love. How he provides that? On the cross. So as we take the bread, what we remember is his body given for us in love. Let's take and eat together. And when we take the cup, we remember what that love cost and that we were deemed somehow in all his love worth it. Let's take and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, your truth to us. We love you so much, and we thank you that you love us. We know, God, that we fall short so often, that false ideas can slip into our thinking, and that pride is always just knocking at our door. We admit that because we're human. We're not surprising you in saying so. But we ask you, God, to help us. Help us to be people who love others well, who don't sit in a judge's seat, but instead love people toward you, the perfect and all-loving judge of us all. Lord, thank you for this truth. Let it grow and take root in us as we develop true ideas about you. In Jesus' name, amen.